Before we get started, we just wanted to read a quick disclaimer. First and foremost, this is a comedy slash true crime podcast. We are a few guys who like to laugh and crack jokes. We understand the nature of the topic is very disheartening and grim, but our aim here is to bring to light these real-life situations so you, the listener, can be more aware of your surroundings and hopefully laugh alongside with us. We will not make jokes about the victims or the families impacted by the unfortunate situations, but we will make jokes about the perpetrator or anywhere we see fit. If you don't believe people should be joking about this subject, or if you are expecting a more serious retelling of the event, or if you do not like commentary and banter on the subject, then this is not the podcast for you. Hi. Hello there. Hi. Thank you for joining us on this, the 35th episode of our podcast. My name is Octavio. This is your boy, Will. For our... Billiam? Will Yum. Oh, okay. They said Billiam. For our... Oh. Whatever you want. Is that correct? No, I don't want... No, I have a couple friends call me Billiam. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that's not too far out of the range of believability. Thanks, man. Thank you for believing me. (laughs) Always. I believe in you. Ah, yes. For our 35th episode, uh, I wanted to do a famous case, Um, and that's why this week we are covering the real-life ghoul, the butcher of Plainfield, the inspiration behind cinema's scariest characters, Ed Gein. Ed motherfucking Gein, bro. So listen to your mama and join us in these bloodthirsty times. small scales what governments do in large ones. They are a product of the times and these are bloodthirsty times. Mm, yeah. yeah, so not only is it the uh, 35th episode, it's the first week in a spooky season. Spooks, dude. Wait. That came out very hard. No, that's right. Spokes dead. Spokes dead. So, anyways, yeah, it's the first weekend of spooky season. Um, so we figured we start out the best month in the whole year with the bang. And Ed Gein is definitely the most well-known case we have covered so far. And he's banging. Yeah, and that means that also means that a lot of you will probably know some stuff about him already. But hopefully we can tell you a few things you maybe haven't heard before or teach you some stuff you didn't know before, hopefully. Um, speaking of teaching, I actually want to say thanks to everybody out there. Last week we did a history episode and there was actually a huge amount of support for it. Um, people really actually seemed to dig it. We got a lot of positive feedback about it and it makes me happy because I very much enjoyed doing that. Yeah, that was, episode. A, that was a fun one. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. But um we gave Richard a uh, about a month vacation, yeah. Un- unpaid, of course. Right, but it is what it is. Sorry, yeah. Richard. These these past couple of weeks have been very detail heavy, and this one's no different. Um, then with spooky season coming up, uh, this one is actually going to be a two parter. Um, we're going to split this one up into two just because there's so many interesting things, and uh, you know, I feel like to tell the whole story. We have to split his life into two different uh, categories before his mom died. And then after his mom died, Ed Gein was two different, completely different people. So I figure we just do it that way. Yeah, there's no way we're going to 
sit here for four hours and talk. No, no, no. I would be uh, uh, blackout by the end of it. <laughs> and uh, I, I wanted to do a uh, because we are currently in Hispanic Heritage Month. We're this is National Hispanic Heritage Month. I, if you don't know, I am Mexican, and Will might as well be Mexican. Um, I'm so pretty we close. Were, I'm, I'm a shade <laughs> off. Yeah, you're a little whiter than I'd like you to be, but you, know, you you're pretty much one of the homies. Yeah. yeah. And uh, right. So I, I wanted to do October 15th, the season uh, Hispanic uh, month ends. And I wanted to do one before then, but Ed Gein turned into two episodes. So now we're doing it right at the end of Hispanic history. We're doing an episode specifically for that. So in two weeks time, you'll have a episode dedicated to Hispanic heritage month. But yeah, until then, up for the homies dog, we're going to be talking <laughs> about some shit. So until then. Get ready for the monster that is Ed Edward Theodore Gein. So you ready to go? Ready, bro. All right. Hope you guys are ready because this this is a gnarly one. So I have found that over the course of the last eight months, we've been doing this, right? We've been, mm-hmm. yeah, give or take eight months, maybe That's a little right. bit more. Yeah. So before that, uh, obviously, we started this out of interest of serial killers and killers in general and morbid things. Uh, And I knew a fair amount, but basically, um, I knew the morbid details. I knew the 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 acts that they committed were what interested me, like the, the death and whatnot. And it was just crazy to think that people were capable of this. But like I said, over the last eight months, I have found that um the stuff that I'm actually interested in, uh, because now that I've read several books, uh, several books and have actually dove pretty deep into some of these cases, is that my fascination has shifted uh, to the origins and what makes these people tick and what causes and what events lead to the actual crimes. So the actual crimes themselves, while interesting in their own way, what I really find fascinating is the lead up. So yeah, what, in, what, yeah. what uh, started the chain of events mm-hmm. so for these episodes these next two episodes uh will and i both read the book deviant by harold Schechter, which we talked about harold Schechter before but it was way 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 back in our very first episode ever on richard chase uh we used one of his books for that uh, the second source that i used is the last book on the left by marcus parks ben kissel and henry zabrowski along with a few articles on the internet just to fill in some gaps of details that I couldn't find in the books. Uh, so for that reason, all the details did find this is going to be a two-parter, like I said. And the first part, we're going to cover Eddie's family, his upbringing and all the things that transformed him into the psycho he eventually became, and the second part covering his actual crimes and crazy-ass fucking murder house. The first episode, though, in all honesty, it might as well be titled Augusta Gein instead of Ed Gein because Augusta is a monster in her own way. Yeah, she's she's a psycho as well. Yeah, a different type of psycho, but a psycho. So, nonetheless. Oh yeah, nonetheless, she was still off her fucking rocker. And that is where we're going to start this story with Ed Gein's mom. If you asked Eddie, Augusta Gein was flawless. And in fact, Eddie thought of his mom as infallible. Pretty much even with God in his eyes, she was an even, she was on course to be right there with God, just even. She, you know, he knew yeah, that was blasphemy. Yeah, he knew that was blasphemy, but he, that's how he thought of her. She was God to him. She was a saint among all the sinners and did not deserve all the hardships she endured throughout her life. Augusta was born Augusta Wilhelmine Lurkin, Lurkin, 
That's a German name. How you say that in a German accent? Uh, my name is Augusta Wilhelmin Lerken. Yeah, she's German. Is that right? And yeah, uh, I was assume. Yeah, Wilhelmin Lerken. So she was born in La Crosse, Wisconsin, to German parents Frederick and Amelia Lerke. They had left Prussia in 1870 during what was called the Old Lutheran Exodus. If you're not familiar with the, with what a Lutheran even is, they are one of the largest branches of Protestantism, and Lutherans followed the teachings of Jesus Christ, but Protestants wanted to reform uh, to a more progressive stance in whatever that means in 1850. You know, I don't know how progressive they could possibly be, but they wanted to, to advance. But yeah, old slightly. Lutherans, yeah, old Lutherans thought that was way too progressive for them, and we're against that. So in the mid-19th century, the old Lutherans meaning the ones who wanted to keep things the way they were because they needed to reform. Um, the idea, the, basically the Protestants want to reform the idea that every thought and action a human makes is infected with sin or has sinful motives. And because of this, everyone deserves to go to hell and suffer eternal damnation. Oh man, what? Yes, yeah, so they didn't appreciate that they were trying to take a different approach to all that. So the old Lutherans emigrated from Prussia, Germany, wherever they were coming from, and they arrived in widely Wisconsin for some reason in about this family in particular arrived in 1870. And eight years later, Augusta Gein, well, Augusta Lerke was born, uh, but by no means was she an only child. She had seven other brothers and sisters. Frederick, the patriarch of the household, he ran his household with an iron fist and regularly beat his children to ensure they had a firm grasp on what being an old Lutheran is all about. So he he was already a tough dad, but to make sure that his kids grew up knowing exactly what it meant to be Lutheran, he would beat the premise principles into his kids. And he didn't hold back. He didn't hesitate. He was a very domineering man. I mean, that's one way to do it. I don't know if yeah. I would go the same way. I, mean, but... it's, it's, I don't know if it's a way to do it, but it's a way that happened. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, these are real life things that have happened. I, I don't yeah. agree with them. I, yeah, I was brought up with an iron fist. Yeah, I cannot I can, find. I could say that I was. I don't know. Not nearly to this extent, obviously. Well, but fucking chancla is necessarily an iron fist, but. Oh, <laughs> well, it hurts just the same. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so according to Deviant. Uh, the book we read, Frederick was a stern disciplinarian, self-righteous, domineering, and inflexible uh, parent figure who never doubted for a moment the correctness of his beliefs, and that he had every right to impose his beliefs by any means necessary or possible on anybody and everybody around him. All of these traits were passed down directly to his daughter, Augusta, and she would become in every way just the same as her dad. Nice. Yeah. Augusta was described. Nice. No. <laughs> Augusta was described as a, a thick set, buxom woman, you know, broad shoulders, strong back, very determined and self assured. You know, just a hefty, good sized woman. <laughs> yeah. That's how I mean, that's how she described. You, you've seen, um, uh, oh God, I was thinking of the fucking, the boondock saints. Yeah. Okay. The chick in the beginning when they're working in the butcher house. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's who I picture. That's who you him. got? See, when I picture her, I picture uh, Bobby Boucher's mom. Oh, from, okay. Uh, Waterboy. That's who I yeah, picture, yeah. you know, just, you know, not fat, but heavier set, you know, big, strong, independent, they need no man, woman. No, well, all right, all right. Yeah, so that's who I picture. That's, okay. you know. You guys can decide. Yeah. So, 
Because her dad wasn't afraid to beat her, she was brought up to obey a rigid code of conduct. And she was super duper like crazy religious. Like, and that's, I think that's an understatement. She was incredibly religious and devout woman. And because of this, all things modern made her outraged, you know, because people in 1897 were just wilding out. Yeah. Crazy people in 1897, Wisconsin, middle America were crazy fucking out there doing God knows what. Yeah, freaking <laughs> turning milk into cheese and stuff. I know, out there just churning the milk, churning, yeah, butter. Churning, <laughs> churning butter all sexy. Getting sweaty. Um, yeah, <laughs> so I, that's mm. that was one of the main points that I didn't understand. Like, turn uh, that butter, baby. <laughs> she definitely was not like most people, and she was a woman to be reckoned with. She knew what she wanted, and she knew who she was, and she absolutely knew that her way of thinking, and especially her devout faith and her religion, was the only way anybody should live, and she was not afraid to tell you that either. It's weird to say, considering how how approachable she is, but she didn't have many suitors. There wasn't many guys coming after her, like, oh my god, I guess I need you to be my wife. Like, she didn't have many of those dudes. She was, uh, like the first Karen. Yeah, 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 she very much was. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. she she wasn't she wasn't capable of keeping her thoughts to herself. If she saw something she didn't like, she was gonna tell you how wrong you are, and you're living your life terribly. Basically, yeah. eighteen ninety seven, freaking Karen, man. Yeah, Wisconsin so she Karen. <laughs> she didn't have any suitors or at all. I don't I don't believe she had anybody coming after her. But when she was nineteen years old, she met a twenty four year old man. And that brings us to Ed's father. Although it is the mother who contributes mostly in producing the conditions which we are going to describe, we usually find in the history of schizophrenics that both parents have failed the child, often for different reasons. Frequently, the combination is as follows. A domineering, nagging, and hostile mother who gives the child no chance to assert himself is married to a dependent, weak man too weak to help the child a father who dares not protect the child because he is not able to oppose her strong personality is just as crippling to the child as the mother is that was a quote from silvano arietti who is regarded as the world's foremost expert on schizophrenia and it honestly could not describe the situation for ed Gein's life any more oh, no, perfectly no, no, no that was spot on <laughs> yeah so George Philip Gein was born in La Crosse in 1873 to unknown parents. What we do know is that in 1877, when he was only three years old, his family was living on a farm in Coon Valley, Wisconsin. And I only included that because the word Coon Valley is fun to say. <laughs> yeah, I heard it in the book and I'm like, yeah. ooh, that's going to be fun to say. <laughs> so they were born or they lived on a farm in Coon Valley, Wisconsin. And uh, on an overcast morning, his mom and dad and older sister left to go into town when they were caught in a flash flood due to the Mississippi River being uh, flooded. Um, so the Mississippi River is at high water and all three of George's, George Gein's family decided to go out to town anyway, and they never made it back. And later he would find out that all three of his family members drowned that day in the flash flood. And he was only three years old. Damn. So after the deaths of his family, he was orphaned and ended up living on a farm with his Scottish grandparents, I think on his mother's side. Yeah, because I think his dad was German. So on his mother's side, he went to go live with his, his Scottish grandparents. 
but do not get it twisted. Don't think that, oh, he, at least he's with family type of thing. Uh, no, 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 no. He, he just because he lived with his grandparents doesn't mean anything. He, he experienced one of the worst tragedies you can ever think of. And then he went to go live with these people that essentially treated him as a as free labor and like just wanted another hand on the farm and he lived yeah. a very For difficult free. life like, on oh, that farm. Sick. Yeah. Yeah, we got another pair of hands, a nice man or going to be a man. Oh, you know we got another, another man on the farm. You're Scottish. Yeah, I know. That's good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Get him to work. Yeah, so he lived a very difficult laborous life. In fact, right after he finished elementary school, he became an apprentice for a blacksmith. He labored as a blacksmith. Uh, I think, when do you finish elementary school in the old days? Like at 16, I want to say? Finish so, what? Uh, elementary school or maybe, no, okay. So what? he had to have been, I want to say 10 at the time he finished yeah. elementary school, something I think like it's, that. I think, I think it's 12. 12 is generally the age now. Yeah, I think back then they didn't do it that long. They didn't do it that long. No, yeah. I think I even think they started at like six or seven. Like they yeah. had a late start and they, and they ended early. So I want to say he was a blacksmith for anywhere between 10 and 15 years <laughs> directly after elementary school. Uh, so one day, though, around the age of 20, 21, 22, he decided that he had enough of this exhausting life and he was going to go make something of himself in the big city. You know how most people do i'm off to the, sh the bright lights of the big city i'm tired yeah. of this farm life so like i said in his early 20s he left the farm in coonsville and ended up in lacrosse wisconsin <laughs> the big city of lacrosse wisconsin yeah. man he's really uh, moving up in the world yeah yeah so a little bigger than coonsville i guess so until the day they left in 1913 uh that's where he would stay um, and in lacrosse, George Gein would work many jobs. He tried his hand at carpentry. He was an insurance salesman. He worked at the city power plant. He worked on the railway. I mean, he really bounced around, but it's only because he would go through gnarly bouts of depression and he hated everything about his life and the bullshit hand he was dealt. Life in Wisconsin in the late 19th century was incredibly difficult as it is. Why did his whole family have to die? And why was he forced to work so hard his whole life? To cope with his deep depression, he would end up spending almost all of his check at the bars in town. And when he was all sauced up, his depression would take a sharp turn and suddenly all of his life's problems were his own fault. And he realized he would never amount to anything. He was worthless, incompetent, and a complete and total failure as a man. Outwardly though, Unless he was in his drunken stupor, he was a very straight, somewhat well-groomed, normal man in La Crosse, Wisconsin. I don't know. The bar doesn't seem set very high in 1900. Um, well, it's not set very high in Wisconsin in general. In but... general? <laughs> You're just shitting all over Wisconsin, Yeah, huh? yeah. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So, he was Wisconsin. just... <laughs> He's just kidding. We love you. Yeah, yeah I love you, Wisconsin. Just not good uh, day. <laughs> Hot take. Hot take. So, um, like I said, he, despite being a straight-up alcoholic, he hit it well. Like, he was a functioning alcoholic at the time. And he uh, was also a practicing Lutheran, but nowhere near as devoted to his faith as Augusta was. I don't know anybody that could be, aside from her parents. So, when they met, George was five years older than Augusta. She was 19, he was 24. And it's unclear what they saw in each other. 
but there's speculation that George liked how big Augustus' family was, and he actually worked with one of her cousins, and that's probably how they met. Um, the thought of having a ton of close family along with a lot of extended family that live nearby, because a family is one of the things he longed for most in his life, uh, it's possibly why he was so attracted to her, and why they, why he even gravitated towards her at all. It's also possible he was uh, attracted to her immense self-assurance. She was a very confident woman. You know, she knew what she wanted. She knew who she was. And, I, you know, if the right type of guy, that's attractive. You know, a woman who doesn't fuck around and knows who she is and what what's expected. You yeah, know, that- I mean, you could tell based off his personality that we know already, he's the the bitch of the relationship. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, he's very beta, I think. Yeah, he's, yeah. you know, he, he already thinks less of himself. And right. His life, no and he sees someone that is confident in themselves. He's like, that. it's like a natural attraction type of thing. Yeah, plus the big family is like, yes, I finally get to have a family uh, around. And, you know, plus this woman, she knows what she, she's doing. She knows what's going to happen. So, yeah. you know, someone in doubt seeking, of himself. Seek, yeah, seeking a leader. Like someone that can tell him what to do and how to be, you know, successful and things like that and yeah she she was unapologetically who she was and she was a strong independent woman who ain't need no man mm-hmm. you know he wasn't needed and i think that's one of the things that drew him near so what augusta saw in george on the other hand is a complete mystery uh she like we just said she's a confident woman who doesn't need a man why would she end up with an burgeoning alcoholic who jumps from job to job. It does not seem like the type of person that she would go for. I mean, it could be because he was at least Lutheran, you know, there's that, or maybe on the day that they met, he actually kept himself together and looked like a strapping young lad. I mean, he was a blacksmith. He had probably had muscles, you know, if if looks can be deceiving, you know, I I don't know who knows. Um, But of all the theories about how and why they ended up spending the rest of their lives together, the theory that I subscribe to and to me, it makes the most sense is that Augusta sensed that George was kind of a bitch, you know, and she was so strong willed and headstrong that she was what she was really looking for was a man who she could mold, who she could train and break their will so she could be the head of the household and live life how she wanted to. And that's that's what I think she saw in him. I would agree with that. Yeah, I like it. All out. Uh, yeah. So whatever the reason, though. They ended up uh, being married on December 11th of the year 1900. And almost immediately, George's dependency on alcohol made itself known. They had been struggling financially already uh, because of his bouncing around from job to job. But the fact that the majority of his checks were spent at the bar, it just didn't help. You know, I can't imagine. Even to this day, I think that'd be a problem. Not just yeah. in the year 1900. I think if you already were bouncing around job to job, and then with the money you when you did get a check, it ended up at the bar. You'd probably have some problems. Yeah, that'd be a little frustrating. Yeah. So she hated pretty much everything about her husband. He was worthless. I couldn't hold down a job. He had no drive. He didn't seem to want to put his family ahead of himself and try to do better. Uh, and he didn't try to make their future better. Like he wasn't thinking ahead of time. Um, despite his years as a blacksmith and all his muscles gained by being a blacksmith, he was notoriously lazy. And Augusta, oh, Augusta didn't hold back in letting her husband know exactly what she thought of him. She would openly call him a lazy dog. Like she didn't care who was around to listen. She would deride him 
100 percent of the times that any shot she could take she was going to take it she was a tyrant at home and all of her beliefs became even more apparent and she seemed to dig into what she believed even deeper i don't know how that's possible considering she's already fucking insane with her religion yeah she's already freaking maxed out Mm -hmm. she found a way to go deeper man yeah you can always go deeper (laughs) so george her dear old husband uh, he became a thing in her way. Uh, she and it was a thing that she felt nothing towards. Uh, she didn't even consider him a person. He was less than nothing. In response to this, George would close himself off completely. He, he would just refuse to speak at all. The only sounds that could be heard was Augusta talking shit and belittling, belittling her husband and just bitching and nagging at him all day. And he would just take it, not talk at all. Like it was this, it created this intense, toxic and volatile situation. It was a, it was a ticking time bomb that would explode at any, that could explode at any moment. And it would explode over and over again as their marriage would go on in the form of, uh, the bomb would explode. And what would usually happen was George would come home after a night of particularly heavy drinking, um, more than usual. So when he got home, probably yeah probably late at night or whatever she would be waiting for him he would open the door come inside and immediately he would be greeted by his lovely wife with a nasty case of shit talking straight to his face she would tell him to his face exactly how worthless as a man a husband you know not he's not a father yet but you know he's going to be a worthless father he was uh anything else you could think of to make a man feel shit about himself and to kind of enforce the things he already thought of himself as a person. Right. Mm-hmm. So as she's belittling him and, and just nagging and going on and on, uh, he would lash out physically at his wife. He would strike her with like an open palm and like a flailing manner all across her face, like almost like a windmill. Like he would windmill hit her uh, and just kind of lash out because of course he would, he's kind of a little bitch of a man. Um, yeah, just throwing his hands around like a little girl. Yeah, so he would just like just flail, literally just like if you can imagine like uh, Muppets or like uh, what Kermit the Frog, you know, when he's like flailing around. Yeah. Pretty much that. Like that's kind of what it was. He was he was hitting her, but probably not all that hard. Um, but anyways, the whole time he's doing that, Augusta's still talking shit <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> and eventually she would fall to the floor yelling even louder and crying out like, you know, just all dramatic and she would keep insulting as she as she's down on the ground she would insult just insult after insult and then george would finally stop windmilling and augusta stopped yelling and things calmed down for just a second augusta would pull herself up onto her knees and get in the prayer position and with her husband still standing right next to her she would loudly and clearly and fervently pray for her husband's death nice Mm. Yeah, these people uh, have a great marriage. Yeah, definitely not uh, not toxic at all. No, it, it, it's a good thing they're together. Uh, so Augusta was sinking into a religious-based insanity, if that wasn't clear. Because of this, despite hating her husband with the intensity of a thousand exploding suns, divorce was just not an option. It, not in this time frame, not in her religion. It just wasn't a thing you did. But also, yeah. neither, neither was murder, though. You know? Yeah. You're kind of, uh, you're just, like we say, you're stuck in a pickle. Right. <laughs> but she was also the type of person to be like, well, I, I made my bed. I might as well lay in it. Like, that's who she was. She was a very yeah. 
straightforward, like this is my fault just as much as it's his type of thing. Because that's, that's a, a part of Catholicism as well, right? Divorce. Yeah, it's a lot of religions that divorce yeah. just isn't really, especially back in this time, divorce just isn't a thing you did. It was just looked on as scandalous, you know? Yeah. yeah. So in, in the church and actually in the community as well, it's it just a scandalous thing. To, oh, she's a divorced woman. Mm. Mm-hmm. So all around her, she saw what to her was pretty much the end times. Women were harlots going around smiling and shit, and men were godless creatures, and any fornicating among them was viewed as unforgivable and an abomination. Even if they were married, sex wasn't something that was to be enjoyed. If you're going to have sex, you better be frowning the whole fucking time, and you dare not move your hips. Don't don't have fun. Sex is something icky and loathsome, only to be had for the sole purpose of procreating. Like, how, how fucking dare you enjoy yourself during sex, you yeah. harlots? No, it definitely doesn't feel good. <laughs> no, no, it shouldn't feel this doesn't, no, it feel, doesn't good. feel good. If it were possible to have sex with your clothes on and not have to look your partner directly in the eye, even then it would be an evil deed. <laughs> it, was, it just sex was just this terrible yeah. fucking thing. Yeah, you know, in her eyes. eyes. It, yeah. It, it was like freaking the thought of sex was like <sighs> Yeah, and if you're sitting there thinking but there's so many great positions that don't require you to make eye contact that you're not thinking like an old Lutheran. And in 1902, yeah. where even missionary is spicy, you know, it's not a thing to be enjoyed. It's, it's just not. Yeah. Well, just hit it, quit it, get the baby out. <laughs> uh, so despite her staunch opposition to becoming a beast with two backs, she thought maybe having a child would help her not feel so alone in this world and could even help her with the struggles against her husband, George. So despite her aversion to intercourse, she allowed George to do the damn thing. And so on January 17th, 1902, Augusta gave birth to a healthy baby boy, who who they named Henry. Despite having begged God for a child, she didn't even like Henry because he was a boy. And males only wanted one thing. And it's fucking disgusting. What's that? What's that? What they, uh, they wanted to take advantage of women's bodies. Oh, is that it? Is that yeah. all we want? No. That's all we want. They might have a point there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll now that they had obviously. a child, now that they had a child to look after <laughs> things, <laughs> things got even more intense. Things around the home were still not great, obviously. Uh, so Augusta thought, well, if I had a daughter, I could mold her in my image. She thought with a daughter, surely her motherly instincts would kick in, unlike with Henry, whom she tolerated at best. So Augusta let George slap at a base again, and she would get on her knees and pray to God that she gives birth to a girl. After a few weeks of praying as hard as she could, she gave birth to Edward Theodore Gein on August 27, 1906. Upon hearing that she had delivered a healthy baby boy, she felt betrayed. I mean, she prayed her heart out for God to bless her with the little girl. But here she was again, holding a male. Yeah. She decided right then and there. She decided right then and there that if she could not have a girl, if God, if this was God's plan to give her two male children, that she would not let this one become like all the others. No, no. This one would be pure and without sin. You can already see the 
the, everything that's about to happen. You can by the, the day he was born, you could see it. Oh man, that little kid's gonna kill someone in, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's fucked. <laughs> so now, with two young children to care for, they really needed George to get his shit together to provide for their family and to be the father that the kids need. So when George lost his job for the umpteenth time, Augusta decided, well, the only way to not lose your job and therefore put this family in even further financial straits is to become a business owner so no one can fire you. See, the thing is, two of Augusta's brothers were successful shop owners in La Crosse, and she had seen that their profits increased every year. She figured, hell, La Crosse is big enough to have a third merchant, so... In 1909, George became the proud owner of a small meat and grocery shop on Caledonia Street. After two years of owning the shop, George was already back on his bullshit, and he was fired. But wait, I thought he couldn't get fired. Well, he was fired by Augusta. Okay, <laughs> Augusta was, had enough of his shit, and she fired him from his own place. And we know this because the town records clearly show that in 1909 and 1910, the shop was owned by one George Gein. However, in 1911, it says the shop belonged to Augusta Gein and George was listed as a clerk. <laughs> yeah. There's a bitch-ass clerk, son. <laughs> she definitely wears the pants. Yes. Yes. So now, Augusta was not only the tyrant in control of their home life, but now she was in control of their business as well and all their finances. The world belonged to Augusta Gein and George just lived in it. But barely. <laughs> he, he meandered through. Yeah, he was just like an afterthought. It was just like <clears throat> when you feel like someone's behind you, that's him. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of how they described him doing his job. Like he would just kind of like be in the shop, like stocking whatever shelves that he, she told him <laughs> to do. And just kind of like hunched over, just slowly kind of doing his job, maybe <laughs> pretending to do his job. Yeah. yeah. So he definitely was like a shell of a man at this point. Um, if not a long time ago. So as a kid, uh, Eddie remembers Augusta being everything to him when he was just a little kid, not sure exactly how old, maybe around three or four. Uh, but he was standing, he remembers he was standing at the top of the staircase and then suddenly he felt himself falling backwards down the stairs and he's not sure if he had slipped or maybe he was pushed, who knows? But the next thing he remembers is a firm, strong hand grabbing his arm and saving him from being hurt from the fall. When he turned to look, he saw it was his mother's hand and she was violently shaking him and yelling at him. In that moment, he had no idea what he was feeling. I mean, he was terrified of the fall he was about to take and confused by why his mom was so angry and yelling at him. But he was also feeling relief and safety because his mom did save him from a terrible fall. He was never sure exactly what made his mom so angry, but it didn't matter because whatever the reason, he knew it had to be his fault. And a sense of misery washed over him that stuck with him for the rest of his life. All he knew from that point on was that he didn't want to be the reason for his mom's anger. Not only that, but it cemented in him the notion that his mom was the only person in this entire world who would be there for him and be there to save him when he falls. Man, she was trying to push him down the stairs. And then was yeah. like, oh, shit. Oops. I th- pushed I think, him a little too hard. Yeah. I think that was her pushing him. <laughs> yeah. Because he, why would he just all of a sudden start falling? You know? Yeah. All of a sudden, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And, and she's there to grab him? Uh-uh. Yeah, I think it was just like a little punk-ass move. Like, I'm going to give him a little, I'm going to scare the shit out of him real quick. <laughs> yeah, and then when she realized she went too far, she's 
but it's crazy how that that one moment puts so many like it combines so many emotions into one thing and it was all her mother his mother you know Mm -hmm. fear uh thankfulness like uh not wanting to disappoint devotion like it was all the same thing now and that was only at three or four years old so when he was a little older he remembers a time when his mother trusted him to go a block down the road to the little german bakery and use the coins she gave him to buy a loaf of bread but when he got to the shop he realized that he no longer had the coins and he couldn't buy the bread he slowly made his way back home probably having a massive fucking panic attack the whole time like if he dared cuss he'd probably be like shit, shit fuck 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 like where did the coins go they were in my pocket where the fuck are they now where are the coins i just had them i just walked a block where the fuck are my coins if he cussed that's how he talked so he stood on the corner to his street for a long time, just freaking out and being terrified to go home and face his mother. When he finally got the courage to walk inside and tell his mother the mistake he made, he was crying intensely and can barely get it out like, (laughs) So when he was done talking, Augusta just looked at him with that look parents are capable of, that is sometimes worse than being yelled at. You know what I mean? Like, like as a kid, it's the most hurtful look your parents in your parents' eye when you realize they like you disappointed them. It's yeah, not an angry mi- look. Yeah, you're you know a what mistake. I'm talking about? You're a mistake. Yeah. What are you doing, you idiot? So she's looking at him with this dreadful, painful look in her eye. And after a bit of silence, she tells him in the most soul-crushing voice ever. You dreadful child. Only a mother could love you. That's brutal. That's that's rough. Uh, that's worse than her just going off the deep end and yelling at him. Ooh, it gives yeah. me chills. So oh, you felt you felt that? Yeah. So at the back of Augusta's meat and grocery shop was a small windowless shack that Eddie had no clue what happened in there. He had seen animals being led into the shack and had heard some kind of loud groaning and other noises. But aside from that, all he knew was that he was forbidden from going back there. Eddie is no more than seven years old at this point when this is happening. So obviously this little kid is going to find a way and go and do the forbidden thing. That's the one thing he's thinking about. It's forbidden. That's what I'm going to do. So one day his parents. Yeah. I'm going to go in there. Yeah. That's what I, that's the first thing I'm going to do. As soon as you turn your back, I'm going to that fucking check. Oh, I can't do this. Well, I'm going to do it. (laughs) And that applies to everything. Yeah. Yeah, That applies to everything. You tell them. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to touch it. I'm going to touch it. Yeah, the minute you look away, guess what I'm touching? That. 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 (laughs) (laughs) You have kids. I don't. So you know better than anyone. Uh, Yeah. Hey, don't fucking throw that. Oh, no, no. I I know about this. It flies past your head. Like, what the fuck did I just say? Don't throw it. Oh, no, dude. I I, I don't forbid things because I know about this psychological thing. But when I tell them I would... I don't want them to or something like that. You know, like leave your brother alone. He's going to go fuck with his brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one day his parents are nowhere to be seen. So he's like, all right, now's my time. I'm getting back there. I'm going to see what the fuck is in that shack. Right. Yeah. So he sneaks over to the shack and the wooden door was ajar just enough to look into the windowless shack. Right. He's looking to this little crack and he sees inside. He saw a hog and this hog was hanging by a chain upside down and on one side of this hog he saw his dad holding the animal steady on the other side of the hog he saw his mom stood um with a long knife 
And then both of his parents were wearing long leather aprons that were just covered in blood splatter. Then he saw his mom take that long knife and run it down the length of the hog's belly. Then pull open the flaps, exposing the hog's innards, and Eddie watched as she began pulling the animal's intestines out and land at Augustus' feet in a large metal bucket. I guess at this point he made a noise or something because suddenly his mom turned sharply towards him and they made eye contact. But it was too late. The image of the hog being hung on a chain and the innards being extracted stayed with him for the rest of his life. And if you know anything about the story, you know that he definitely kept that image with him for the rest of his life. Yeah, some uh, inspiration. Yeah. Was it foreshadowing? Yeah. Slight foreshadowing. Mm. So after two years of selling goods to the people of the cross, uh, Augusta had managed to save enough money, uh, and she decided the Geens were done living among among the sinful people in this Babylonian city. You know, lacrosse is filled with sin and gross men and loose women. Gross, you know, dude. You know, you know, lacrosse, Wisconsin is the height of perversity. I mean, standing there with your ankles and your shit fucking your yeah. neck showing. Yeah, and you're there churning butter all sexy. Yeah. It kind of, you know, it reminds me of, remember when we did Skinwalker Ranch? Uh, the family had moved from like Arizona, like nowhere Arizona to like nowhere Utah. Remember that? And they're like, yeah, that place back in Arizona was just too wild for me. Yeah. 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 It's, it's kind of the same thing. Like she's like this, this nowhere place is too much for me so we're gonna move 40 miles to the east yeah it's like the so, las vegas of wisconsin <laughs> everyone knows that yeah. that's common <laughs> yeah what stays in La- <laughs> what happens in lacrosse stays in lacrosse you all know that except for herpes that shit comes back with you yeah that shit definitely comes back to you. <laughs> so augusta moved the family in 1913 to a farm like i said about 40 miles east of lacrosse they lived there for about a year then I don't know, uh, maybe she found a bigger, possibly better piece of land, a bigger house. I'm not sure what the thing is. Maybe she thought they still lived too close to the godless heathen of lacrosse. But in 1914, she moved them another 80-ish miles away for a total of distance of about 120 miles away from lacrosse to a piece of land a few miles outside of Plainfield, Wisconsin. Yeah, where... it's, like, it's, like, it's like Baker to Vegas distance. Yeah. Plainfield, Wisconsin is <laughs> is where you should recognize that name because that's where the gnarliness happens in Eddie Gein's later years. Oh, yeah. So this, is, this, this is where all the shit goes down. Yeah. So this, at this point, though, for, with the move, he was eight, eight years old. Okay. So here at this two-story house that Eddie moved into at the age of eight would be where he would live until the police would show up and search the house and go down in history as the most macabre and disgusting place to ever exist in Wisconsin. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer would try to take the throne, but I think the Gein house was worse. Like there's Jeffrey Dahmer's house was fucking terrible or apartment. It was terrible, but I think Gein wins on this, on the front of discussing this at least. Are you talking about after the after? Right. The, what, oh, yeah, the, what yeah. we know happened. Yeah. So I think oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer's house sucked and it was Horrible, but I think Gein has him on awfulness. Yeah, it's safe to say. So Augusta was deeply proud of this home. And it's actually, I, I thought, thinking of it when I was younger, I thought it was like a like cabin, like one-story shack type of thing, like kind of small. But it's actually a pretty big two-story house with like several rooms. So she was pretty proud of this home. And yeah, um, I, I think of uh, the house from The Sixth Sense. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I guess like a, the, like, a, like like a farmhouse. Yeah, 
That's a good, yeah. I like it. So it's, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that fits. A, the farmhouse, and that was the only movie that I could think of that had a farmhouse. And maybe not so uh, ironically, the Texas Chainsaw House is probably more accurate of what his house was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so like I said, she was really proud of this house. And in 1914, it's almost unheard of that a woman would be the one who bought a piece of land. So having her name on the deed is yet another example of the type of woman she was. Augusta's house was kept in immaculate order, and she would say the house needed to stay as neat as a pin. And in her care, it definitely did. She kept that house fucking immaculate. The house also suited... Yeah, the house also suited her need to be away from all the bullshit out in the cities of America, all of them, because uh, they're all heathens. And for that reason, the fact that they were six miles away from the Plainfield Village was immensely appealing. She had almost no reason to go into town either because the village didn't even have a Lutheran church. As her kids got older and became capable of doing the grocery shopping, you know, because this is the time of life when you had a monthly grocery trip, you know, take the wagon and go <laughs> Yeah. buy some groceries and come back so she didn't have to up. do that yeah she had two boys now so she didn't have to do that she had no reason to leave the property at all which suited the people of plainfield just fine because the less they had to deal with the gusta the better nobody really <laughs> liked dealing with the gusta and i don't blame them she she sounds like we said she's the, yeah she's the care and uh, prototype since there was no lutheran church in the town augusta decided that she would take her children's religious education on by herself which I'm sure I don't have to tell you that suited her just fine. She was more than happy to be the, the teacher of religion to her children. But of course, she couldn't handle all of her son's education. And at the age of eight, Eddie Gein started attending grade school. And at the age of 16, he had officially graduated from grade school in a class of like 12 people. During that time, he was an average student, but he enjoyed reading. Uh, the subject matter, however, he chose to read about was suspicious to say the least um as a younger kid he would do his best to fit in with the other kids but didn't really know how so he would watch how the other kids interacted with each other and would do his best to like imitate that behavior it's almost like watching like a movie where like the trope is like there's like a robot and you have to teach him how to be human but it doesn't really work i'm like sheldon cooper you know what i mean yeah so yeah He's like or, that. He just um, he tried his best to be friends, but he just came like, off as weird. Like like Chappie. Maybe yeah. Chappie. Yeah, but Chappie was adorable and he was great. Yeah, but he was trying to imitate behavior. <laughs> Chappie, Chappie, ironically, is a very good metaphor for Eddie Gein because what did he want the most? He wanted to make his mom happy, right? Yeah. That's what he wanted the most. He yeah. wanted to seem normal and to be happy with his mom. Yeah, yeah that's actually. Is yeah, he's modeled after Ed Gein. It's official. You heard it here first. You're welcome. Uh, like, yeah, so like I said, he wasn't great at it. And it made him seem weirder than he already was. I like guess it's like I said, it's like watching a robot trying to be human. A few times though, he did manage to make a connection with another kid in his class, and he would hurry home to tell his mom about all about his new friend, because of course he told his mom everything. Just like Bobby Boucher's mom, Augusta would tell Eddie that that kid or his parents were the devil. Whether it was something the dad did, or maybe she thought the kid's mom was a woman about town. Either way, all she knew was that her kid wasn't going to be associating with those kind of people. And Augusta would always end up in full-on screaming by the end of the conversation. Eddie, who by this time was super prone to bawling like a baby, so much so that a lot of people thought Ed had this effeminate feel to him. 
Like not only the crying, but the way he composed himself and the softness of his voice. After being yelled at, Ed would run off to his room. And the next day, that same kid who he just made friends with, he would avoid like the plague. And this would be the case anytime he branched out on his own, even just a little. He's a mama's boy. Yeah. Yeah, everyone was the devil. Oh, man, that's awful. Like, why Why would you want your kid to not have a social life or any kind of friendship? It doesn't make sense to me. Because <clears throat> you have to look at the mom. Yeah. She was happy to be alone. She figured her kids might as well be too. Yeah. Just she already needed that uh, controlling uh, aspect to their life, right? Same thing with mm-hmm. the father. She wanted to control him. Same thing with the kids. You ain't going to do shit unless I say you can do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I guess this day and age, we, we it's hard for us to understand. Maybe it was a little bit easier back in the day to understand the isolation that they had. I don't. So besides... It's, 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 it's hard for us in, you know, growing up in Southern California and now, I mean, you living in Florida, but you're... Or Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah, you're still in a uh, relatively large city. Yeah, right. But if, you, if you were to move to bumfuck montana mm. it's a little different yeah because i obviously when my mom <clears throat> had moved to indiana i went and visited and it was like a super small town and i can see how this type of shit would happen a small town feel oh yeah like it takes freaking 40 minutes to get to the next town through oh, that's awful. through no, like farm no thank you you just you just drive down a uh, two-lane highway, 40 mm. minutes through uh, cornfields to get to the next <laughs> no, civilization. Man. You can and stop because I'm not down. Yeah, and it's just <laughs> dotted with with farmhouses along the way. So, yeah. I can yeah, picture yeah. it. No, thank you. Oh, so, it was ter- terrible. It was bes- fucking terrible. Besides his mother being a fucking crazy person, the reason Eddie didn't have many friends is because he was, he was the weird kid in class. He had these shifty eyes and always had this shit-eating grin on his face. It didn't help that one of his eyes had this growth that left him with like a saggy, droopy eye and kids would make fun of him for it and then he would cry. He also had this weird smile, like no matter what the topic, they could be talking about the usual boy stuff or, you know, a topic that that smile, like that smirk would be an appropriate response to. But that smile would be there even if they were talking about how someone in the village had just died from freak accidents or like any weird thing that happened, any terrible thing that happened, that smile stayed no matter what. Yeah, it's a little fucking sly grin. Yeah, they called it shit-eating grin several times in the books. So the girls in his class generally stayed away from him for obvious reasons, but also because he had a habit of staring at the girls in his class in such a strangely fierce way that even back in that day, they knew there was some fucked up shit going on inside Eddie's head when he was staring at them. When it came to things that... Boy, young boys tend to talk about like, like, did you see Mary Jo Beth's ankles the other day? Yeah, I think I saw her wrist last Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, man, what's scandalous? Like, you know, just regular boy things, you know, spicy things. When the boys would get onto these topics of, you know, women, girls around their neighborhood, Eddie would turn beet red and run the other way. But if the topic was something about you know, macabre or something like that. He was all about it. You know, the, the weirder and grosser, the, the happier he was to talk about it. Yeah. But when it came to the opposite sex, no, thank you. No yeah. ham, no ma'am, no turkey. Yeah. Sexy time. No, no. So it wasn't just his mom that was losing her. Their oh, grip on reality. Oh man. Sorry. 
Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't mute my mic fast enough. <laughs> oh. <sighs> Bless you. Apologize. Thank you. Like I said, it wasn't just his mom that was losing their grip on reality. When the Gein boys were teenagers, George was pretty much just a full-time alcoholic. Like, it was his job. He didn't really have time for other unimportant things like work or helping around the house or raising his children. Not when there's beer to drink. No. He did have time, however, to be an abusive husband and father, especially when he was drunk, obviously, which was day to day. He had a habit of uh, whooping the boys, you know, beating them, whatnot. But like I said, at this point, they were teens and the beatings their dad gave them wasn't really shit. You know, if you grew up in a house where you were spanked a lot or whatever, there came to a point where like, yeah, hit me. I don't care. You just take it. You know what I mean? So they got to that point. Yeah, I have a short story. Because my grandpa was was the only male that grew up in his household. Mm -hmm. Because he only had daughters. And so... Uh, I moved in with my grandparents when I was like two years old. So mm-hmm. I was the only male cause I have two sisters. <clears throat> and so, uh, he raised me with the iron fist, but as I was getting older, you know, I would do something wrong and he'd bring out the belt and start whipping mm-hmm. my ass and I yeah. would fake cry just to make him stop. I would, uh, cry it, before it, I even it, got it, hit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would try to make them feel bad before they spanked me or hit me with the belt. Oh no, I I was like like someone on death row. I was like, yep, I know my fate. I'm just taking the walk to the bedroom, get my yeah, ass no. fucking beat, but like I said, like I was getting older and he was getting older, so it didn't have the same impact. And so I'm like, I you know, it, it doesn't hurt, so I'm just going to fake cry so he stops. Mm. So he thinks it it actually hurt. That had the opposite effect um with my dad. Uh if I didn't react, he would think that there was no point. So I would just sit there and take it. Oh, just stone face. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it's not. Anyways, enough shit. about our childhood trauma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying I, I can relate. Right. <laughs> Which is shitty that we can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrible. That is what it is. Yeah. Hopefully we're breaking the cycle. Um, anyways. So George took to just saying fucked up shit. He would just try to hurt his family with words instead of physical beatings. And he would go as far as accusing, (laughs) this is funny, he would accuse his wife of cheating on him. (laughs) But I guess in his drunken state, he must have forgot that Augusta hated even the idea of sex. It's just funny to me that he's like, you're probably cheating on me, you whore. (laughs) He's like, she's just looking at him like, what? (laughs) What the fuck are you talking about, bro? We only had sex just so we can have kids, you idiot. Yeah, it's just, he's just dumb. Anything that he can do to try to assert some kind of dominance. So fast forward a few years, and both Game Boys are in their 20s. And both parents have descended further into madness. But Augusta's new shit was to harp on all the modern women who are the exact opposite of Augusta in her eyes. She had seen all the stuff going on in the so-called Roaring Twenties with the flapper girls and all the boozing. The world was a wicked place, and the only safe place from all of that fun shit out there was here on the Gein Farm with Mama. One of Augusta's favorite pastimes was to read from the Book of Revelations, especially the passages about how women were evil creatures who only served to entice men into doing stuff they didn't really want to do. 
One of her favorites was from Proverbs. The lips of a strange woman drop honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But her latter end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, therefore, my sons, hearken unto me, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house. For why shouldest thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman, embrace the bosom of a stranger? What, my son, and what, O son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows, give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways that destroyeth kings? Then, after reading that wonderful passage from the Bible, oh, which, by oh the way, boy. by the way, what besides what she's about to tell them, if she had just read that passage and was like, you have to live by the word of God, I would be like, okay, so mouth play only, yeah. nothing else? Yeah. That's what I would take. It says, you know, oh, lips of a strange woman is like a drop of honey and her mouth is smooth and oil. Okay, I'm down. Oh, yeah, oral. All right. <laughs> yeah. But, Wait, but isn't Revelations. The uh, beginning. It's like the Old Testament. Yeah, but the Revelations is like end times, right? Mm -hmm. I think so. That's like, that's like towards the end of the Bible where they talk about the destroying of. I don't know. Continue. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't know enough <laughs> about the subject to argue. So. Yeah, I had read the full Bible at one point, and pretty sure Revelation so, uh, yeah. is all about the like destruction. Okay. Like, if you go against God, like I will smite you, type of shit. Yeah, my dad was a type; he was Catholic, and we used to read like a chapter a night sometimes. And mm. at some point, I read the entire Bible uh, just by doing that, but I don't remember enough of it. But like I said, after that, oh yeah, proverb. Yeah. It's the it said the apocalyptic prophecy. Okay. That's what the book of Revelations is. Just yeah, so just yes. for further knowledge. Just so you know. Uh, My yeah, memory so is great. After this proverb, she would immediately make them swear that they would keep themselves pure and never know the touch of a woman. And if they just can't control themselves, she would prefer they commit the sin of Onan, which in the Old Testament was the, uh, the sin Onan committed for spilling his seed. Even to this day, the Roman Catholic Church officially condemns masturbation. That's their official stance to oh, this day. Can't so the sin, yeah, the spin of Onan is whacking it. So she would prefer that over the touch of a woman. And she would even go as far as to show them how to choke the chicken. Either way, just like... She what? She's like, hey, this is how you freaking spank the lizard? I, dude, I don't want to even get into that speculation because there's a couple people say that there was some incestuous activity going on with the mother. There's, it's not official. Ed Gaines never admitted to it, and so we don't know for sure. So I'm just going to leave that one alone. Hmm. Yeah, probably yeah. safe. Yeah. So uh, just like two of Augusta's brothers, uh, both Gein boys would live out the rest of their lives without a woman by their side, except, of course, her mother. In early 1940, George Gein's long-time abuse of alcohol finally took his toll and he passed away at the age of 66. He had been suffering for about the past three years. Uh, he became pretty much bedbound and was walking around uh, not doing yeah. shit more, less than usual. So he yeah, was really racist. suffering. Yeah. He was really suffering from like age 63 to age 66. And finally at 66, his body gave up in April. They held a funeral for him and the local paper ran a nice remembrance for him in the obituary. 
Nah, George Keane, 66, born August 4th, 1873, passed away April 1st, 1940. His mother and father and little sister preceded him in death. They were gone to town and he was staying home because of the high water as it was raising in the Mississippi River. His mother and father and sister never returned, leaving him an orphan boy. Now this flood occurred in Vernon country a good many years ago. He lived in La Crosse until 1914, then going to Plainfield, where he has since resided. He is survived by his wife, his two sons, Henry and Edward, and he had suffered considerably for the past three years, but his suffering were eased by his faith in God, and he was a good husband and father, and we miss Paul Hulu. Meanwhile, his family is like, meh, at least we don't have to take care of his lazy ass anymore. I think they talk more about the flood than they talked about him. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I only included this uh, for purposes later on, for an example. Yeah. But like, it's like, oh, yeah. He, yeah. Uh, but the part that gets everyone, me is that he died because of the flood. And then it also occurred in Vernon County a good many years ago. It's like, yeah. What? But it's just like the uh, he was a good husband and father, and he will be missed by all who knew him. And meanwhile, Ed and Henry and Augusta were like, yeah, hey, at least we don't have to care for him anymore. Yeah. Like, who the fuck wrote this? Yeah. So a few years later, at the height of World War II, the Gein brothers would uh, be rejected and not allowed to join the military. Henry was too old to be drafted, and Eddie's eye bulge thing, like his saggy, droopy eye, kept him from joining. He was rejected, and he actually made the like 130-mile trip from Plainfield to Chicago, I want to say, to join the military so he could fight for his country. But they saw his eye. Right, like, well, it, 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 it obstructed his vision, so he was rejected for that reason. Since they couldn't join the military... Um, they had to work at various places in order to bring home money as a man of the house, you know, because the first man of the house passed away. I don't. Yeah. I, I think I added that sarcastically. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that was sarcastic. Quote unquote, quote, unquote man of the house. house. Yeah. 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 So Henry would become the foreman of a crew comprised of a bunch of Jamaicans. Um, yeah. Yeah. In Wisconsin? In Wisconsin, yeah. There, there was a whole crew of like construction dudes, all of them Jamaicans. Uh, hey, Jamaica, man. And Eddie, You're going to build your house, man. <laughs> Eddie would tell people like, yeah, Henry's the only, I mean, obviously this is 1940s racist. You know, they, they were, Eddie would defend his, or not defend, but he would be proud of his brother. And he would be like, yeah, Henry's the only one in this county who can handle them. You know, meaning implying the black Jamaicans. Yeah. So yeah, so it's just it's just a thing that he did. <laughs> he was the foreman of a bunch of Jamaicans. <laughs> and um this is even stranger than that. This next little bit is even weirder than being the foreman of a bunch of Jamaicans. Yeah, uh Eddie handsome. Yeah, Eddie would become a handyman helping whoever needed it and doing whatever jobs he could, but mainly mainly Ed Gein would become Plainfield's resident babysitter. Huh? Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah, dude. Uh, the the guy who inspired countless movies and stories was a favorite in town to babysit their kids. He was the babysitter. Sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. See, what happened was, CC. What happened was, um, see, see now. What happened? What had happened is this, when Eddie this. Eddie Gein was a kid, other kids didn't like him. When he's an adult, other adults thought he was an oddball. Don't didn't really not like him, but he's an oddball. Good, he's cool enough, but they kept their distance. Like it's, 
uh, um, Marcus Parks described him as a guy uh, that he was fine. You know, he's, he's a decent enough guy, but don't marry my daughter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, no, nah, you're you're nice enough fella. Just stay, stay away over from there. My yeah, stay over there. So as an adult, other adults thought he was not ball. But as an adult, kids loved him, probably because he was so immature and stunted emotionally by his mother. Uh, but he got along with kids more than anything. Like he was more their friend than not than their babysitter, you know. And actually, he one of his closest friends uh, was his teenage. Well, no, he's a teenager. <laughs> we'll get into him next episode. But um, he he that was like his closest friend was this teenage kid. Um, so Henry and Eddie, they you know as brothers, they got along pretty well as far as brothers go. I mean, sure they had stupid arguments and whatnot. What brothers don't. But ultimately, like, Eddie looked up to his older brother. You know, like I said, he was bragging about how his brother was the only dude who can handle the Jamaicans. And, you know, by all accounts, uh, Henry was a much harder worker than Eddie. And they did most things together. They grew up alone on a farm. They went hunting together. They, you know, did the work together. And for the most part, they agreed on a lot of things. But in their late 30s, which is already a, a weird time to acknowledge this, um, in their late thirties, Henry, he was a little bit more independent than his younger brother, Eddie. And uh, he began to question the relationship Eddie and Augusta had. Like he thought it was a little off, Weird. you know? Yeah. yeah. Even to him who grew up in that life, he's like, don't you think you're a little too attached to mother? You know, he wasn't talking shit on his mom. He was just saying, you're 30 something years, you're 38 years old, man. Like, you know, you shouldn't be under, you know, a mama's boy at 38. Yeah, sucking your mama's tit. Yeah. 30. So, hypothetically Eddie, speaking. Uh, yeah, yeah, hypothetically speaking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Eddie, who at this point in his life still didn't think there was a single thing wrong with his life as a mama's boy, he obviously took offense. Not enough to make a big fuss about it, but it was something that he remembered. So, uh, the idea that Henry could think any kind of negative towards their mother was, it was beyond understanding to him. Like I said, Augusta and God were might as well have been the same person. Eddie had just assumed that Henry and him shared the same bond, but it was clear at that point that there was a vast difference between them. Uh, as part of their duties, like to clean up the property and handle the property, um, they would clear brush, right? And the way they did this was they would start a fire, you know, a controlled fire. So on Tuesday, May 16th, 1943, the brothers decided to clear some brush using a controlled fire. At some point, though, the fire was out of their control due to a sudden strong wind and began to spread, spread wildly, and Eddie lost track of his older brother due to low visibility from the smoke and the brush itself. Yeah, so and, from the brush into the trees, and they're like, right. oh, yeah, yeah, and then shit. There's the obvious danger of a raging fire. You know, you can't just see through it or get around it easily. So Eddie had moved to the opposite side of the marsh, and from there he managed to put out the fire. Afterwards, he began to look for his brother, but he couldn't find him. He didn't know where his brother was. And he, after looking for several hours, he went to go get help, and he formed a search party. The people involved were prepared to be searching for a long time as it was beginning to get darker. The sun was going down, low visibility already. Um, the area they were going to was dangerous with the fire happening recently. And when they arrived at the area where they had been battling the fire, Eddie walked for a bit and then led the searchers directly to where the dead body of Eddie's older brother, Henry, was lying face down 
and it was very obvious that he was dead at this point. The searches were immediately suspicious because Eddie had told them he didn't know where his brother was. Like, that's why he got a search party. He's like, I don't know where my brother is. Come help me find him. But then here he is leading them straight to him. And at, when he was called out for this, when the searchers like, dude, you told us you didn't know where your brother was. All Eddie could say was funny how that works. Yeah. So aside from him knowing where the body was, they didn't really suspect good natured and dim witted Eddie of being capable of a murder, especially of his own brother. So they chalked it up to accidental because Lord knows farmers die all the time from work related accidents, right? I mean, shit happens on, on the farm. Yeah. These things happen. He's not the first middle-aged guy to die from a fire and he won't be the last. So they just, uh, just, yeah. he just died accidentally. This was just a unfortunate death. So like Eddie just got lucky and just walked us straight to him and just, uh, you know, yeah. found the needle in the haystack as they say. Right. <laughs> and he's just, it's funny how that works, you know? Yeah. So this is crazy to me, though, because despite laying, like found him lying face down, right? And they found him laying on a patch of burned ground where there had clearly been a fire, right? So if you found a guy laying where there was a fire, what would you expect to see? Burnt to a crisp. Right. So not even Henry's clothes were burnt at all. And none of his exposed skin was burnt any kind of charred or burnt or blackened by any fire at all. He was just lying there as he had been. But not only that, but there were weird bruises found on the back of his head. Hmm. Mm. 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 <laughs> that was a new one. <laughs> Ultimately, different, though, different inflection. <laughs> Ultimately, mm. though, his death was attributed to asphyxiation. Uh, they didn't even try to explain away the bruises or the lack of any kind of evidence that he died in the fire. He just, he died from choking Not, on the yeah. smoke. Yeah, he couldn't yeah. breathe. So just like uh, Henry's dad, George, um, Henry's death would be front page news and the community spoke very highly of the elder Gein brother. They left a very nice obituary for him. You know, it spoke highly of him and, uh, that was Man, police sucked it. back then too, huh? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, so a lot of people say that there's not enough physical proof to say that Ed Gein is a serial killer because to be a serial killer, you have to have three murders at different time intervals, um, unrelated to each other, type of thing, right? So people don't consider Ed Gein a serial killer because he only has two confirmed murders under his belt. But I think. I don't know why there's speculation. He killed his brother. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they, there's no way around it. Yeah. They, he had a conversation with his brother that he didn't enjoy and he thought it made him think differently of his brother. And yeah, then all of a sudden didn't think as highly of mother as he did. Right. It's like, you must die for that. Yeah. I'm pretty. And a lot of people are still like, well, there's no proof. I'm like, well, he killed his brother. Okay. I don't know. His, his body was found in a burnt field and his body wasn't burnt. Like, yeah, he was lying right him? there. He's lying you right there. Him? You're over there. You killed a brother. You killed him. Mm -hmm. You dragged him over to that spot. That's why he's not burnt. Like, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't so take I, a fucking rocket scientist to figure that out. Officially, it's not attributed to him. I'm going to go ahead and say he killed his brother. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So since Henry's death, Eddie had uh, been happier than usual because now that it was just him and his mother, things were as they should be. 
Eddie has his mother all to himself. Just him and his mother. No one to interfere. Nice. However, a few months after Henry's passing, though, Eddie's uh, time with his mother would come to an abrupt halt when she suffered a stroke. Uh, by the time they arrived at the hospital, she was too weak to even walk inside. Like she said, Eddie, I don't, I don't feel too good. And then he's like, what's wrong? And she's like, oh, I guess I'm collapsing. You know, and then they drive, they, they make it to the doctor. I don't know if they drive, but they make it to the doctor, walk inside, and she had to be wheeled in on a wheelchair. So as the doctors uh, get to work on her, all Eddie could do is sit and wait and pray that mother was going to be okay. After a few weeks in the hospital, which Eddie stayed by her side the whole time, she was finally allowed to go home but still needed to be on bed rest. Augustus' recovery from a stroke was long, but ironically, Eddie loved that his mother fully depending, depended on him to do pretty much everything. And in his mind, she would finally show the affection he so deeply yearned for and would appreciate Eddie for the perfect son he was trying to be. Of course, no such interactions ever happened, and as much as Eddie was distraught by this, his devotion never wavered. All he wanted yeah. was a little bit of attention from his mom and a little yeah, bit of he, he wanted a yeah, hug, he wanted a warm embrace yeah. from his mother. And he, he thought, got it. now that she depends on me, she's bound to be grateful. No. Yeah. Nope. You're dealing with Augusta here. She ain't, you know, yeah. man. Nah, she's still a psycho, bro. Yeah. So after a few months, Augusta, it was a long recovery. After a few months, Augusta finally had enough strength to stand on her own and then walk on her own. So in August 1945, Augusta was almost back to normal, and Eddie was happy to have his mother back again. In late 1945, during the winter, Augusta decided they needed straw for their livestock to make it through the winter. So they made a trip to their neighbor's house uh, together to go buy some. So when they arrived, they saw their, their neighbor outside beating a stray pup pretty much to death with a stick. And the puppy was howling in pain. And because of this, a woman had emerged from inside the home and was begging and yelling for the neighbor to stop. Pretty much one of the most white trash scenes you could ever pull up on. Yeah. Yeah. So Eddie didn't know it, but this event would directly lead to his mother's death. As the days went on, Augusta would harp on what she saw happening before, before her eyes, and she just couldn't let it go. She said she couldn't believe what she was seeing. I mean... She harped on this shit for like a week, all the way up until her death. She would cry out at the memory of the evil that had transpired in front of her. I mean, how could her neighbor do that? It was ungodly and a mortal sin. No self-respecting man should or could ever live with a woman out of wedlock. Wait, what? Yeah. She was way more upset about there being a woman who wasn't his neighbor's wife living with him. She couldn't give two fucks that the guy was killing a puppy with a stick. The thought of that woman emerging from inside the home literally killed her on December 29, 1945, at the oh, age of 67. Damn. Augusta's obituary was listed in a small box on the obits page and simply said, Mrs. Augusta Gein died at the Wild Rose Hospital on December 29th. <clears throat> Cerebral brain hemorrhage. Bodies brought to the Gulf. Gold? Yeah. Start over. Mrs. Augusta Gein died at the Wild Rose Hospital on December 29th of cerebral brain hemorrhage. The bodies brought to the Gulf Funeral Home where services were held December 31st. Reverend Feast officiating. She is survived by one son, Edward, who lives on the home southwest of here. 
think about how how much the people of the town wrote about her husband. <laughs> yeah. Who was who was by all accounts a piece of shit. Uh, he was he was given this like full page editorial, uh, and this is the shitty memorial she got. And Wait, who's just, the Reverend? Reverend what? Feast. I don't know what that CH came from. Feast. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so basically, uh, died at this hospital mm-hmm. because of this. Brought her body here. Reverend said uh, a couple things. <laughs> She's got a son. And he still lives at the property. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, it's southwest yeah. of here. And then, and then what you got, let's go back up to the, the dads. It's like, he's a good man. He's going to be missed by everybody. He had a terrible childhood. Like this yeah. whole, like, yeah. George sixty six, born yeah. August 4th, 1873, passed away. But first night, the 40s, mother and father and little sister preceded him in death. They were gone to town was staying home because high water as it was raising in the mystic rivers mother father and sister never returned leaving him an orphan boy now this flood occurred in vernon county a good many years ago he lived in the cross until 1914 then going to plainfield where he has since resided he is survived by his wife two sons henry and edward he has suffered considerably for the past three years but his sufferings were eased by the faith of god he was a good husband and father will be missed by all who knew him and then augusta she was uh she died here she had a cerebral brain damage uh reverend said something uh she has one son he still lives there so I mean that <laughs> it, it's a testimony to how much the townspeople fucking despised Augusta Game and and yeah. how but she didn't give a shit. That's the thing. She didn't. That wasn't her prerogative. She the townspeople hated her. Good. I'm I'm good in my faith and my sons, or at least my son. Yeah. So her funeral wasn't attended by anybody in the town. It's her funeral was attended by a few of her brothers, um, and of course her son Edward Theodore Gein. Aside from that, like I said, nobody else showed up. Because of this, Eddie had allowed himself to let go and really bawl his eyes out in public, like something he would never have done if anybody from the town had showed up because he would have been embarrassed by it. Mm-hmm. But like he was like dramatically like crying over his mother's death. Like he was really letting go. And I, I can't blame him. I'm not saying this no, is funny truly, or anything. Yeah. Truly heartbroken. Right. He was really able to fully mourn his mother at this event. And um I mean, I, like I said, I can't blame him. The only woman he'd ever loved was gone. And now there was no one in Ed Gein's life to tell him what to do. And he was left alone to do whatever it is that Edward Theodore Gein wants to do. What does he want to do? That is where we'll pick back up next week. <laughs> when we talk about uh, all the things that made Ed Gein so famous and inspired so many movies. So get ready for a, a hell of a next episode. This episode was more about the psychology behind him and what makes a monster a monster, which, like I said, is more interesting to me than the crimes. But next week, uh, get ready for some murder. Oh, it's awful. It's Ooh. awful. Nipple belts and fucking Ooh, masks. Yeah, let's talk about some nips. Yeah. All right, man. See you next week. All right. Bye. Love you.